MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill, and this is episode seven of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution by Ellie Mistal. We're covering three chapters today, chapters 16, 17, and 18, beginning on page 175 in the hardback edition. So let's jump in with chapter 16, the abortion chapter. Ellie begins by reminding us that no... Abortion is not explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution, and additionally, the right to privacy is also not in the original text. And many rights stem from that idea, including contraception and reproductive rights. And if you think that matters, Ellie says, I can't really help you. Uh, Because, of course, the right to choose isn't in a document written when women couldn't vote or own land or hold public office or even sit on a jury. The concept of marital rape wasn't even a thing until the 1970s. 1970s. In fact, every state had laws on the books making exceptions to rape if the rapist and the victim were married. And that's what the framers thought of women they liked. And did the framers care about children? Nope. They could be put to work in the fields or beaten with sticks. And again, those are the kids they liked. That's what they thought of white women and children. Even their own offspring of the violent rape of their slaves were born into bondage. Quote, so tell me again why I should care which rights these vicious assholes happen to think women had. Tell me again why the failure of these fucking rapists and or rape apologists to recognize any explicit right to bodily autonomy should matter one bit to the polity in which we now live. Don't you dare say the rights of the unborn to me, unquote. The right to privacy was first recognized by the Supreme Court in 1965 in Griswold v. Connecticut. This is one of the three cases, by the way, Thomas pointed out as what they were going to come for next in the Alito concurrence um, with Dobbs. And it dealt with a Connecticut law of contraception. Estelle Griswold of Planned Parenthood opened a birth control clinic that counseled married couples on birth control and prescribed the best methods for those couples. They opened their doors November 1st, 1961, and they were arrested November 10th, 1961. This law was one of a bunch passed under the Grant administration called the Comstock Laws. Comstock was an anti-vice Christian reformer. And Ellie says, quote, I just don't get these people like Comstock. I don't understand these people who look at two people fucking and think, oh, no, something must be done about this. Who are these people and how are there always so many of them? Comstock was successful, though. And in 1873, Congress passed what would become known as the Comstock Act which made it illegal to use the mail to send obscene materials across state lines, including contraception and even racy letters. 
Though by the time Griswold came along, people had been fighting the Comstock laws for a while, including Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who had been fighting Comstock since the 1920s with a little success. It must also be said she was a racist who sometimes tried to sell birth control as part of a eugenics plan to eliminate, quote, the Negro race. And on May 11, 1960, the FDA approved the pill, and it shifted reproductive choice back to women, which gave women as much physical power to veto reproduction as a man. And he says that's why Griswold and Buxton were arrested after just 10 days. It's not because they were handing out contraceptives. It's because they were handing out equality. So if you believe women are people, the idea that women should have the right to control their own reproductive systems seems obvious and straightforward. But the actual court took the scenic route to get the right result in Griswold. Instead of deciding the case on equal protection grounds, SCOTUS did their usual thing of acting like the contraception ban was facially neutral. Instead of equal protection, Justice Douglas divined a right to privacy from other constitutional amendments, saying, quote, The foregoing cases suggest that specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance, various guarantees created zones of privacy. And there's a reason Ellie covered substantive due process ahead of this chapter. Remember, it was a dirty phrase in the 60s because of the Lochner era and the Lochner laws. So what Douglas was doing was applying substantive due process logic without saying substantive due process. Tons of rights explicitly protected in the Constitution don't make any sense unless this unenumerated right to privacy is also protected. Ellie says, what good is protection from unreasonable search and seizure if there's no protection from being unreasonably monitored? What good is the right to form an association if the FBI can just wiretap any meeting it doesn't like? What freedom do we really have if the government can shove a camera up your hoo-ha to see if there's any funny business going on? Of course, the right to privacy is a thing. Of course it is. It's a function of the Due Process Clause. Douglas just called it something else because he didn't want to use that phrase. Justice White put it a little more clearly in his concurrence, saying, In my view, this Connecticut law, as applied to married couples, deprives them of liberty without due process of law. That is a concept used in the 14th Amendment. None of the justices adopt the equal protection framework, because once you start giving women equal protection, the entire patriarchy starts to unravel. Note that Griswold only applied to married women. God forbid, Ellie says, they give women suspect class status, triggering strict scrutiny of discriminatory laws and practices. Then they might have to start paying women equally, unquote. And that's the rub. The decision not to give women protected class status matters because of Roe v. Wade, which recognized constitutional rights to abortion under the right to privacy and the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Same logic as Griswold, but the Roe court recognized the legitimate state interest in limiting abortions for the benefit of the health of the mother. Here's the relevant part of the majority opinion written by Justice Blackman. Quote, We repeat, however, that the state does not have an important and legitimate interest in preserving and protecting the health of pregnant women, whether she is a resident of the state or non-resident who seeks medical consultation and treatment there, and that it still has another important and legitimate interest in protecting the potentiality of human life. These interests are separate and distinct. Each grows in substantiality as the woman approaches term, and at the point during pregnancy, each becomes compelling. That compelling point is viability. And that's with respect to the state's important interest in life. Recall that discriminatory laws are okay if they're related to a legitimate state interest. So here, the court is saying that most abortion restrictions after the first trimester are fine, 
and can be justified at fetal viability. Almost as if the fetus is a protected class, and not the born human woman person the fetus is attached to. Enter Planned Parenthood v. Casey. This decision, and not Roe, is what defined abortion rights in America, as they were up until a week ago. This book was written before Roe and Casey were overturned. The Casey Court in 1992 upheld the fundamental right to an abortion in Roe, but created new standards for abortions. Quote, The court asked if the state abortion restrictions created an undue burden on women seeking the procedure before viability. The court actually determined that all but the husband notification passed this new test. Everything else, informed consent, waiting periods, treating women like their hysterical children threatening to cut their own hair, all of that stood. He says, I'd slam the majority more, but the dissenters would have overruled Roe altogether. I guess infantilizing women is better than turning them into incubators with mouthparts. The Republic of Gilead knows no bounds, I suppose. Now that framework doesn't even make sense if you assume women are people deserving of equal protection. There's no framework that can justify denying a woman medical care because of the state interest in forcing them to engage in unwanted labor. No other operation of law forces a person to painfully change their body and reconfigure their organs because of state interest in the result of that transformation. And this part gets me. It says, quote, It is wrong to force a woman to give birth to a baby she doesn't want. And I say that assuming she consented to having sex in the first place and that giving birth wouldn't actually kill her. It's barbaric to force a woman who had consensual sex to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term, even if she can carry that fetus to term safely. I don't even have a word for what it is to force a rape victim to carry her assailant's baby to term at the risk of her own life. I don't think there's a word for that. Ellie goes further to say liberals shouldn't be arguing for choice. It's a great argument, he says, but the better argument is forced birth is some evil shit that can never be compelled by a legitimate government. The end. And aside from Ellie's 8th and 14th Amendment arguments of cruel and unusual punishment and equal protection, he has a 13th Amendment argument, too. The same amendment that prohibits slavery surely prohibits the state from renting out women's bodies for free for nine months to further its interest. Forced labor is unconstitutional. And that brings us to Chapter 17 which is called, You Know This Thing Can Be Amended, Right? And Ellie opens with a great line. The astute reader will have noticed that a central theme of this book is that conservatives are irredeemable assholes who will consistently act in bad faith to uphold white supremacy and patriarchy over the objection of most minorities, women, and decent people. Unquote. Based on that, here's how the amendment argument always goes. I'm going to read directly from the book here. I love when Ellie does these conversations. A conservative says, Turns out this machine I'm driving stabs gay people in the face. Reasonable person. Oh my god, turn it off. Can't. What do you mean you can't? You're in the goddamn driver's seat. Won't. Why? Look, we need this machine to get where we're going. Who is we? Those of us allowed to drive. It just stabbed Bob in the face. Yeah, sucks for Bob. If only there was something we could do. Stop driving it. Can't. Oops, sorry, I mean I won't. Hey, maybe you could fix it. It can be fixed? Maybe. Here's the manual. Okay, it says here that if you and I turn these two keys at the same time, it will stop stabbing gay people in the face. Here's your key. Thanks. Swallow's key. Oh my god, why did you do that? I don't think it needs to be fixed. It just stabbed Jillian in the face. 
See, it's working as intended. Help me fix it. Can't, haha, I mean, I won't, whatever, fuck Jillian. <laughs> so maybe conservatives don't want the Constitution fixed. Could it be that they're not being intellectually honest when they claim to prefer new amendments to secure rights? And nowhere is their intellectual dishonesty more overt than in the fight over equal rights amendment, the ERA. We've been trying to get it done since the 70s, but Ellie argues it was actually ratified in 1868. It's called the 14th Amendment. White guys have spent 150 years trying to undo it. There's really only one amendment conservatives want, and that's the fetal personhood amendment. What they want is forced incubation of fetuses by women who are unwilling to perform the work. And then he brings up the 13th Amendment again. Quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall be, have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to its jurisdiction. If we accept that a woman is a person that can't be forced into labor, fetal personhood laws can't overcome the 13th Amendment. Forcing a woman into nine months of incubation and labor is a rather obvious violation of the 13th Amendment. And he can prove it, he says. When a woman gets pregnant, her body builds a whole new organ called the placenta. That organ leaches nutrients from the woman's bloodstream to feed the fetus through the umbilical cord. The placenta is not alive. So, quote, it seems to me that if a woman is a person, she has the right to remove any unnecessary organ from her body, especially if it's malfunctioning. Nobody makes a constitutional case over an appendectomy. The legal argument that a fetus has a legal status on par with the woman to whom it's literally attached is a logical trash sprinkled with bad faith and misogyny. And that brings us to chapter 18. The right to vote shall be abridged all the damn time. And Ellie starts by reminding us that the right to vote isn't in the original text or the Bill of Rights of the Constitution either. Besides not wanting women or black or indigenous people to vote, the founders had concerns about extending suffrage even to all white men. They were worried about the uneducated masses voting for idiots and con men. They pretty much knew that poor uneducated white men would elect someone like Donald Trump. Besides, there'd be no reason for the Constitution to address voting because those rights flowed from the states. And they saw no problem with voting rights varying from state to state. Quote, one way to tell the story of America is a two and a half century ongoing struggle to fix this error. Hence, the 15th, 19th, 24th, and 26th Amendments. 15th, can't abridge voting rights based on race. 19th, it won't be abridged on account of sex. 24th, eliminates poll taxes and tests. 26th, establishes that age can't abridge your right to vote unless you're under 18. Four amendments, post-Bill of Rights. Ellie says that's 25% of our amendments are about securing and expanding the right to vote. And that expansion has been under attack ever since. And we still don't have one federal voting system. We have 50. Our electoral system is madness, Ellie says. Nowhere have conservatives succeeded in ignoring the Constitution as much as they have with neutering the 15th Amendment. The Voting Rights Act is the one thing that defended it. And it does a lot, including banning or creating a discriminatory stand practice or procedure for voting. It gives victims the right to sue in federal court. It prohibits using a test or device to prohibit eligibility. It bans voter intimidation. It guarantees votes have to be counted without discriminatory intent. And in 1982, the act was amended to also ban discriminatory effect, not just intent. It bans voter dilution, which is packing and cracking and gerrymandering. And that's just Section 2. 
Section 5 requires historically racist jurisdictions to get approval from the Department of Justice if it wants to change its laws. That's called preclearance. And Ellie says preclearance is dope. And that's why it's no longer there. That's why it doesn't exist anymore. Quote, conservative justices will find a way to do racism. And they did it in Shelby County v. Holder in 2013. Roberts determined that the coverage formula in, in Section 4 was unconstitutional. And Ellie says his logic basic is basically that racism has been sufficiently defeated in the South, thus requiring certain counties to submit themselves for preclearance was no longer necessary. And when we say the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, that's what we talk about. That's what we mean. There are a few obvious errors with Robert's logic. First, racism has not been defeated. Second, if and when it is, Roberts and his SCOTUS will be the last guys to know. And finally, Ginsburg put Robert's willful ignorance on blast in her dissent when she said, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Roberts overturning Section 4 laid waste to Section 5. His opinion opened the door for all kinds of voter suppression, and the GOP has taken full advantage. Voter ID laws closing polling locations in black, black communities, for example. Quote, black voter suppression is a biological imperative for white supremacy. It's a survival strategy. They can't win any other way. And that's today's episode. I'll be back next week with the final chapters. And then we'll see if Ellie, who is extremely busy, we'll see if he's able to come in for a final episode to answer listener questions. He may not be able to, but we'll, we'll reach out to him. Also look for the new Mueller she wrote out today. Had a nice interview with Pete Strzok. We talk about witness intimidation from the Mueller investigation to Cassidy Hutchinson. And I'll be back tomorrow with Dana for the beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. I've been A.G., and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter, and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.